This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, the place where tech workers come to get smarter about their money. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to take you beneath the surface level and cover traditional personal finance topics in a way that is both approachable and relatable, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about investing. More specifically, we're talking about a method of online trading that allows investors to follow and copy the trading strategies of other investors, often through social media or other specialized trading platforms, otherwise known as social investing. The most common example of social trading is when an individual investor follows a successful trader on social media platforms and copies their trades. This can help investors who lack the time, experience, or confidence to invest on their own to achieve similar returns to more experienced traders. But if you've ever traded stocks or crypto on Robinhood and immediately received the prompt letting you know which of your friends also bought that stock earlier that same day, then you've already experienced social investing. Or if you've ever found yourself knee-deep in a Reddit thread debating the merits of bottom-up versus top-down company analysis, then you too have experienced social investing as well. For better or for worse, financial influencers play a significant role in the trend of social investing because they have established a following and built a reputation for their perceived knowledge and expertise in the financial markets. They're adept at using social media platforms such as Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube to share their investment strategies, insights, opinions, and ideas with their followers. And these so-called finfluencers are said to provide valuable guidance to their followers, especially those who are new to investing or looking for new ideas. When done right, they can also help to create a community where newer investors can learn from each other, share their experiences, and collaborate on investment strategies. But it's important to note that not all financial influencers are experts. Some may knowingly promote risky or inappropriate investment strategies. That's why, as with any investment decision, it's essential to do your own research and consider multiple sources of information before investing your money. My guest today is Manning Field. CEO of Follow, a new social investment startup encouraging investors to bolster and diversify their portfolios by mirroring the trades of today's top financial creators. Manning previously worked as the chief operations officer at Acorns, and prior to that, he launched market-leading products and programs at JPMorgan Chase, like Chase Sapphire, Chase Freedom, and Chase Ultimate Rewards. Manning was named an Ad Age 40 Under 40 
and he spent four years in Beijing, China as chief marketing officer of J.P. Morgan Chase's consumer team. During his 18-year tenure at Chase, Manning oversaw many departments, including branding, advertising, and product development. So with that brief introduction, welcome Manning Field to the Tech Money Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Malcolm, and thank you for having me, and thank you for driving this important discussion. Yeah, man, I appreciate you making the time to be here. And I, my first question to you, you know, I ran through your resume really quickly. It's a pretty long one, so forgive me. I, I breezed through it as quickly as I could, but what else should I have included in there? I mean, listen, I appreciate you going point by point. I think what you basically said is that I'm old, which is true. <laughs> you know, I just turned 50 years old, but but I've spent my entire career building products in regulated industries in finance. And so that kind of leads me to the solution that we've created here at Follow and, and gives me kind of, I think, the credentials, the experience and the scars to try to make something great. Well, I would also say that in addition to being seasoned, I won't use that O word you used, that bio of yours also says that you're effective because there probably isn't a person listening to this who's not familiar with any of the brands I just said with the Sapphire Freedom and Ultimate Rewards programs that Chase rolled out and drove people a little bit crazy point chasing over the last, I don't know, 10 years or something since the Point Guys site has been a key partner of theirs. So even if people don't know your name necessarily, they do know your work. Uh, well, I appreciate that. I remember when we would design things, we would actually invite the points guy. He lives in DC as well, but we invite the points guy up and, you know, we take him through things and get his feedback before we introduce it to consumers. Well, I have actually been a, a, this is obviously not a paid advertisement by any means, but I've been a Chase credit card user for quite some time. And so I'm very appreciative of the amount of points that you convinced them to roll out for my particular Sapphire tier of user. Whatever influence you had over that, uh, I, my wife, and the trips we've taken definitely appreciate you. Well, I'm glad that you're getting value out of that. And thanks for being a loyal customer, even though I have not been there since 2016. I'm, I'm, yeah. All of my friends are still there running those businesses and, and trying to create products for people like you and your family. Fair enough. So more to the conversation at hand, right? You heard my description or definition even of uh, social investing in the beginning and, and the role that finfluencers play in, in the world of personal finance these days, right? In the world of investing. Anything I missed in there that you'd like to add or object to? No, I think it was a very good characterization. I think, I think the thing to really understand is, number one, none of these, these voices are financial advisors. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing as you think about audiences and consumers to understand that is they are not financial advisors. They are not giving financial advice. They're not licensed people. But that also doesn't preclude the idea or the perspectives that could be of, of high quality and could be of value to get, you know, mostly young people trying to do the right thing for their money. And so when I look at things through the lens of the five teenagers that I have in my life, between my own kids and my girlfriend's kids who I live with, it's really just seeing the way in which they engage with the world and, and having voices that look and sound like them, but may have a, a little bit more of a perspective and maybe a few steps ahead of them. That is the single thing that helps drive action for making positive change in your financial life. And that's, that's the way, at least how we start to think about it. Then we work through what's the best way to do this in a responsible, risk-oriented way that protects all of the uh, members of the ecosystem, mostly the consumer. I appreciate you categorizing it that way. One, pointing out the fact that most, if not all, of the folks you're getting this information from 
are not people who are licensed practitioners in the space. And I'll talk about that in a second. But the other piece of it being there's still people who have opinions that are worth something that just because they don't have the formal training does not preclude them from being worthy of giving out quality advice. I appreciate you putting it that way because I asked the question the way that I did because listeners of this show will know immediately, like my driver's license says that I'm 35, but I also think and talk like a person who's like 65. And so the boomer in me is like, get off my lawn, right? Like I'm, I'm a licensed financial advisor. I'm a certified financial planner. I've been doing this for quite some time and spent quite a bit of time building up the acumen to be able to be a person who I consider worthy of other people listening to on the subject. However, I'm not where the people you're talking about are. Your teenagers are never going to be able to find me on TikTok talking about the markets or talking about how to invest and what to invest in and that sort of thing. And that's on me, right? For not meeting them where they are, not on them for consuming information the way that they like to consume information. So I always like to make sure that I'm being as fair as I can and not imposing too much of my own personal opinion on the audience. We're here to educate, right? And so I appreciate you categorizing it that way to get started and and sort of checking me in an indirect way that you didn't even mean to. Well, I definitely was not trying to challenge you. I know and appreciate your your expertise. I too am licensed as well, but that doesn't motivate my kids to listen to me around mm-hmm. how to manage their money or where they need to clean their room. <laughs> so, for me, when I think about solving problems for consumers, is it's what's going to be the thing that gets them to do the right positive step towards a financial future that is much healthier, and you know, understand all of those kind of ways in to drive that behavior change. And to drive that that connection, and for us, as we think about the platform we're building, that's the starting point. Is just really what's the thing we need to do to convince somebody to do something that may not feel natural, that you may not have the confidence or the training and the education to do, mm-hmm. but to do it and make that step as easy as possible. But let's stay there for a second. I want to dig into sure. part of what you just said at the beginning of that statement, which is that your teenagers and the young folks that get their information the way they get their information aren't going to come find you or me having a conversation in the outlets that we have them. Why is that, that younger people don't want to take the information or the advice from so-called professionals who are the people licensed to be doing this work instead of the people who aren't? I mean, I think it comes back down to classic generational differences, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. You know, when my parents were growing up, they started listening to rock and roll. When I was growing up, because I'm a little bit older than you, hip hop was like a new thing. And gosh, you know, every single parent and the disconnect between their kids and their parents and those generational differences, the way that they consume culture and the way they consume content and information mm-hmm. is just changing so rapidly that there's just always a generational divide there. And as much as, as it's hard to admit that you're on the other side of that generational divide, it's real and it's always going to persist. So I think it's incumbent upon the experts and the adults to recognize that and meet the young people where they are. And that's, that's what we're intending to do. Yeah. You're not talking to me. I very much lean into being an old man in my hammock in my backyard (laughs) and like have zero interest anymore in being the young people. Like when I watch TV and people say the youth or the young people, it occurred to me probably three or four years ago, like painfully that they're not talking to me anymore. Like I don't count as the young people. And once I got over that heartburn, 
I'm now at the point when I'm like, us old people need blah, blah, blah. Like that's, that's the way that I think about it. But to the point that you're making in the broader conversation that we're having so far, one of the things that I think is missing is updated regulations to allow the younger financial professionals. I think about myself at 23 when I came into this business, my friends were all on Instagram and my cohort of millennials were all getting their information from Twitter, Instagram, maybe Facebook to some degree, but mostly Twitter and Instagram. But I, as a newly licensed, you know, I got, I think my series seven and then my series 66 over the course of like, call it 90 days or something. And I was going to go conquer the world, right? And meet everybody where they are, but the regulations wouldn't allow it, right? You're not allowed as a licensed practitioner to be in a lot of those spaces talking about things like how to manage your 401k, just as a broad example, or which stocks are good stocks to be buying right now in this particular market. I can go on CNBC and talk about that all day, every day if I want to, but I can't jump on Instagram live and have that conversation the same way. And so part of it is the regulations have to get out of the way and adjust to the fact that people consume information differently than the way they did in 1940 when the 1940 Act that regulates a lot of the investment advice that we give out today. The 1940 Act is still what we live by. So to the point, I think part of it is regulators have to adjust and adapt to allow people to get there, to be able to meet the audience and also be giving out what we would refer to as informed opinions. But until then, you're right, we're sort of not speaking the same language where the folks in my community as professionals are saying those kids need to stop listening to the stuff on TikTok. And the kids who get their information on everything from TikTok are saying, come meet me where I am or shut up. And so anyway, I, I think that that's part of what the disconnect is. And it's incumbent on Congress and whoever else to help make it a little bit easier for the folks that want to be there to be there. So anyway. Yeah. No, I listen, I totally agree with you. I mean, the, you know, all of our core securities regulations were written in the late 30s and then the 40 Act. And and so, and that's a response into the Great Depression and all the drivers of market turbulence around that. So regulation in and of itself is a slow and very reactionary approach. It's incredibly important. And, you know, we do everything at follow through the bright light of the regulation of the 40 Act and all the things that the SEC oversees. And, and we respect that deeply. But the challenge is, right, that 40 Act didn't even contemplate the internet, let alone social media and what, the, what that would do. And so how do you deal with complex issues around disclosure? How do you deal with complex issues around supervision? Yeah. Right. If you're a traditional firm, even supervising an advisor on social media is an incredibly challenging task. And so, you know, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, our job is to be a responsible player in the ecosystem, demonstrate that you can do things in a responsible way that adheres to the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And if the law needs to respond, then it should. I mean, the, the SEC, even last year, one of their major kind of areas of inquiry was there and trying to understand digital engagement practices, mm -hmm. which is really a code for Robin Hood confetti. And so they worked with all, you know, fintechs. I was at Acorns at the time and, and kind of leading, I was the CEO of the broker dealer and the investment advisor there. And so we spent a lot of time with staff, just like, how do we think about it? Because to be honest, like regulating confetti is kind of dumb. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you're using tricks, game mechanics and things like that, that might get an uneducated or 
uninformed consumer to do something that's not in their own financial best interest, where maybe you've got you know, a hedge fund on the other side of that transaction or data is being sold, and you're incentivizing them to take an action they don't understand or they don't have full information and using confetti to hide that, that's probably not great. But if using confetti to recognize the fact that you just got another dividend payment because of a responsible investment that you've made that you dollar cost average into, well, gosh, confetti sounds like a pretty good idea because that's good things. So I think it's really about understanding the underlying motivations and the capabilities and the techniques. You've got the TikTok CEO, you know, in your town today kind of testifying. And, you know, obviously there's a ton of engagement practices that they use algorithmically and behaviorally. And so it's less about what the techniques are, but it's like, what's the motivation and what's the goal? And I think as long as, and all the regulations are written this way, as long as you're staying close to what it is that you're trying to do for a client, which is looking after the financial best interest and your fiduciary responsibilities, then, then things are, I think, are very, very positive. When they're not, that's when there needs to be real scrutiny. So let's dig into that a little bit. So if I understand correctly, follow as a platform basically allows me to subscribe to the feed of my favorite traders and receive their exclusive investing content, right? And then I can even have my brokerage account automatically mimic their trades. Am I describing that appropriately? Am I oversimplifying? No, no. I mean, I'm going to probably maybe even simplify it even more if you don't mind. Okay. So if you think about our product, it's the combination of two platforms. It's the combination of a publishing platform like a Substack Mm -hmm. or Patreon or whatever you might use or even something like Seeking Alpha. It's a combination of a publishing platform and then the ability through an investment advisor that's a separate entity completely. The ability of an investment advisor to, through its own proprietary portfolios, to execute and mimic the ideas shared from an influencer and a publishing perspective for advisory clients. And so we make that very seamless for you to do. So it allows you to subscribe to content and publishers because the way to think about these influencers and others on our platform is they are not advisors. Again, they Mm -hmm. are publishers. They publish content. They get paid for the publication of that content. Separately and adjacent to that, our investment advisor creates its own portfolios that mimic the behavior and the ideas shared by by these publishers. And then we allow clients who choose to join the investment advisor and we've got all of our suitability requirements. We do all of the fiduciary things around that to make sure that that's also a good decision for them. But should they choose to sign up for and say, I wanted to follow you, not only not as a publisher, uh, I know you couldn't be a publisher because you're an advisor, but just as the same, pretend you didn't pass all those exams. If you were a publisher and you also shared with us your brokerage data, which is how we create these mimicked portfolios in our advisor, if someone wanted to also follow your money moves, they can do that automatically through the advisor And what we do technically is within about two seconds, if you made a trade in your portfolio, our advisory portfolios would true up to that, the positions in your portfolio, and then anybody following our advisory portfolio automatically get in sync right away on any position you take. And we do it on a fractional and proportional basis, and it all kind of happens magically behind the scenes. So what we're trying to do is make this as simple as possible for the end user. You were supposed to be making that simpler. And now you just gave me like 15 other questions <laughs> that I have because that, that's completely different from, not completely, but that's a little bit different from what I had in my mind as I read you guys' website and descriptions and everything and thought that I understood. So one thing I want to make sure that I completely understand, the publisher or the influencer is not the same person as the, I'll call them portfolio manager, who's actually placing the trades based on the recommendations of the influencer. That's correct. That's correct. So the influencer then has a portfolio 
that they own and manage themselves. It's their own personal assets. Correct. And the asset manager is getting that data feed. So as they make trades that they're recommending through their substack, they can mimic those trades within a couple of seconds based on, I assume, some sort of algorithmic trading mechanism that's on the back end. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've got kind of proprietary authorization through APIs mm-hmm. to see their trading activity, which they've permissioned to us. We don't custody any of that. And then we have our form portfolios, which we've constructed based on that data. And we react to any moves that they make in their own account that they own that we don't even actually really ever touch. We just get signal from that. This is one way to help make sure that the influencer themselves is eating their own cooking, right? So Correct. when I watch the news and I see, you know, there's four guys all going to jail soon yeah. because they colluded to pump the stock of, I don't know if it was AMC or, or I think it was AMC, but Bed Bath & Beyond. Yep. So they colluded to pump the stock of Bed Bath & Beyond using Twitter over the course of a few months, all the while they're selling as it's going up, 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 right? So that obviously is illegal. That obviously, because it has a term, right? It's called a pump and dump scheme, yep. is what the 40 Act and all the other different investment acts in the, was it 1933, I think, also are designed to fight against is people manipulating the markets, basically. And so what you're describing is something different, which it sounds like I'm in the same boat as the people who are following me. So it's incumbent upon me to make sure that as I'm giving out advice and information, it's good advice and information that I genuinely believe in. Even if this particular stock I'm recommending goes down 30% tomorrow morning, we're in this together. That's correct. I mean, we have the same positions. And so for us, you know, the way in which we manage against the potential risk of market manipulation, and this is obviously something that, that, that's very important for us to have good visibility into and prevent, mm-hmm. is the transparency. And I think what we found with, as we go through a fairly rigorous screening process, even to get on our platform as a publisher, mm-hmm. and one of the things that we look at is we look at historical trade data. We have them actually submit brokerage statements to us for 90 days of brokerage statements, we do background check and a KYC check just to make sure. And obviously, we look at all of their social media posts and activities around there just to make sure not only do we think their takes are good, but they do the things that they say. And so what we have found is the influencers on our platform actually really appreciate the validation, appreciate the transparency, and appreciate the ability to show things like the performance of their portfolios in a way that has been validated and it's not just some kind of post on Reddit that could have been photoshopped, even if it is a Robin Hood screenshot. And so for us, that validation, and there's a selection bias on a positive side to have an influencer that actually wants to have that. I must say you're winning me over, Manning. I, I, I was a bit of a skeptic as I was like conceptualizing the idea of how this works. Finfluencers drive me insane simply because they don't have any Scrutiny is probably not the right word. It's really, they don't have a dog in the fight, for lack of a better way to say it, right? I can say whatever I want to online and because there's nobody regulating me and there's nobody fact-checking me, there's nothing out there to make sure that I'm actually giving what I believe to be quality advice. And that was my, that is my main issue with people who consider themselves influencers. It sounds like you guys already had that same concern yeah. Somebody shared that same concern. And so you've built this apparatus to make sure that you're doing your best to prevent those kind of things from happening. So I'll say I'm warming up. <laughs> I'm less of a skeptic than 
than I was before you and I had this conversation. But another question that I think of as you tell me like the structure of how this thing works is that exciting, Mm. right? Isn't part of the fun of investing, buying shares of companies you're actually interested in and feeling the validation of being right when those shares take off and, you know, go to the moon, as they say? Yeah. Well, listen, I don't think making good decisions with your money is supposed to be like exciting. This is not fair enough. (laughs) You know, I mean, this is not March Madness. This is, I know it's probably felt like that in recent years, but that's not actually the right thing to do. And that's not the right expectation to create, especially anyone young, you know, but you're young and you invested, you know, a portfolio of Bitcoin and Tesla two years ago, like you're down 46%. I mean, so like, how good does that feel? (laughs) Right. And so I think what we're trying to do, and we control kind of this, like you're talking about dopamine and like, what is that feeling that, that you get? I'm just not sure that a financial system that's designed to drive a bunch of dopamine is, is really what we should be building. And that's not what we're trying to build here. I mean, this is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be engaging. I think the other thing to understand, and this is really why the solution we've had that's rooted in automation and the ability to do it through the RIA is this notion of there's high intent for most people to do the right thing and to execute and to get the right trades and to get the right positions or to get a portfolio that's diversified with respect to their goals. But gosh, the intention to execution gap is pretty big. Mm-hmm. And so what we try to do is really to try to solve that gap by driving things through automation. The intention to execution gap that you're describing, there's a lot of fear in between those two that make up that gap, right? And so I have the idea, I have the interest, I have the intention. And then the thing that keeps me from clicking the trade button is the fear of being wrong. And so I completely take your point on that one. I think that's the biggest problem to solve, especially for newer investors. Yeah. Yeah. And also like people are busy. <laughs> like you might miss the opportunity or you might miss and we've studied at the feet of behavioral economic thinkers like Richard Thaler and Solomon Bernardsi and, and others and have had the chance to work with them mm-hmm. directly and and understand that the psychology of like people don't always operate within their own financial best interests. And obviously I'm sure what you see this even within your own clients. No. <laughs> but but it's important to protect people. And sometimes that means protect them from themselves. And you know, when it comes to, especially when you think about young people and investing, the most important thing is just to start, mm-hmm. just to get started and establish behavior and put yourself on a recurring deposit and just let the markets work and let the gift of the eighth wonder of the world, which is compound interest, start working for you. To the point you made before, people roll their eyes at me when I say exactly what you said, that good investing is supposed to be boring as hell. People always roll their eyes at me when I, but I mean, I genuinely believe that like the things that make you a good investor, dollar cost averaging, sticking through the downturns, staying consistent, automating your contributions, buying for the long term, like all those things are supposed to do to be a good investor. Not only are they boring as hell, they also feel counterintuitive. So it's really the things that make absolutely no logical sense to you as a human person are the things that are best for you to do that make you a good investor like you're talking about. So the behavioral economic approach says that I'm supposed to be dollar cost averaging so that I catch some of the good, some of the bad, and 
over a long-term period, over 5, 10, 20-year period, if I look at a graph, uh, the X and Y axis, my trend line goes up and to the right. Yep. But that's so counterintuitive. You want to just throw the money in today because you want to take some action now and you want to feel good about getting into the, the game. Also, when the market is down is when you should be adding more money yep. to the positions that you believe in because now the things you really liked at one price are on sale. So the same way, you know, if you're checking out on Nike's website and they offer you 50% off if you get a second pair, to your point, there's stocks that were down 50% in 2022. They're now leading the NASDAQ in 2023. But if I didn't buy Tesla while it was down, I missed that sale. I missed the discount, right? Or NVIDIA or whoever else yeah. we're seeing that, that kind of a snapback from. And so you're supposed to rebalance, right? You're supposed to sell off some of your winners to buy more of your losers when the market shifts. And that's what helps to make sure that trend line goes up and to the right over time. But that feels counterintuitive. If the market's doing really well in one particular sector, why the heck would I sell those that are doing the best to buy the ones that aren't doing that well? So all of the things that logically make absolutely no sense are the things that help to make us a better investor. And so part of what helps you to take action and stay active to the point that you were making is also that somebody else's hands are on the wheel and not yours. Yeah. So somebody else is helping to make sure that the right things are happening instead of being at the mercy of your human emotion that yeah. dictates bad decision making. Yeah, yeah, I think that's where the technology of, if you want to call it robo-advising or rebalancing automatically, is so incredibly important. And you know, most people don't have the time or the understanding or the emotional fortitude to actually make someone's hard to like, why am I going to exit out of this Apple position? It's done really well for me. Yeah. Right. And that's a hard thing to think about. Right. But, but if you think over the long term, that's 100% the right thing to do. It also depends on what your risk profile is and your time horizon. Well, everybody thinks they're an aggressive investor with a healthy risk tolerance until there's a bear market. Yeah, until right now, right? <laughs> until the Fed moves 25 basis points when no one wanted them to, right? <laughs> so you mentioned a little bit ago, like the fact that up through 2020 and 2021, there was a ton of excitement out there from younger investors and everybody wanted to be a trader. It's part of the reason the green confetti was working so well. Yeah. And, you know, Robinhood users were placing trades four times a day. And now that number has been cut almost to 25%. Have you seen just personally, not necessarily through the work we've been doing, because I know you guys are a younger platform, but have you seen a drop off in the excitement of younger investors looking to get into trading or have you seen them sort of shift where that energy is and now they're focused in a place like follow as an example where they can get information from somebody who knows what they're talking about rather than a guy in a cat mask on YouTube? And that being the focus. Yeah, I, I would say the way that and if you could look at this and actually Google Trends and other places, but like investing interest from young people, it was disproportionately high through kind of the boom. Call it, mm -hmm. you know, from COVID start to call it January of 22. And it was just irrationally high for both investing in general. And then you look at crypto, it's like even more disproportionately high. But what you've seen with the reset is you've seen a reversion to a historical mean. So I don't think it's like historically less attractive or young people are less interested in it. I think what they are concerned about is for those who've been through kind of the, the more irrational times is they don't understand what to do 
because they thought they understood it. And maybe mm-hmm. maybe they had some money in FTX, and, and not only did they not understand what happened, but actually just basic fraud there. And so you just lack in trust of institutions. And so and lack in trust in themselves. They look in the mirror and like, well, I'm not nearly as good of a trader as I thought I was. And like, well, I mean, our goal is to be like, don't be a trader, be an investor. And the people we have on our platform – we don't have pattern day traders on our platform. We have people who trade and some people have active strategies and some people have more passive strategies. And there's a diverse set of views around strategy and around risk appetite and, and time horizon on our platform because we want our platform to look like the country, both from an investment style perspective and frankly, from a pure diversity perspective. You know, the industry has a tendency to be a little bit older and a little bit you know, male and a little bit white. You know, we also want to have a platform that looks like the next generation, and that includes people with voices and audiences on these platforms that speak to their communities. Yeah. Male, pale, and stale is the phrasing that I've heard quite a few people start to use to describe the industry at this point. And to your point, I am glad to hear you say that you're not seeing from a data perspective that younger investors are going away, because that was actually a concern for me was that even as it was happening, as 2020 was happening and everybody's wanting to, you know, my own friends are texting me to ask me questions about GameStop. And when I say that sounds like a terrible idea, they say, you just don't get it. So I was concerned that as this thing blows up, as it always does, because bubbles have to burst at some time, these people will go away and they won't come back for years and years and years because they were so disenchanted by the way that it ended that they just don't have the interest and the appetite for it. And so it sounds like what you're saying is maybe the hype has worn off, but there's still interest and some level of excitement. It's just a reversion to a normal market and less like ridiculous overhype. Yeah, I agree with you. The one point I would make, though, around some of the hype cycles. So even on GameStop Day Mm -hmm. or even when Elon Musk tweets about Dogecoin, those are cultural moments. Mm -hmm. You know, you go back to those days and time, like, like Robin Hood was at the top of the app store ahead of TikTok. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Coinbase was at the top of the app store ahead of YouTube. And that doesn't make sense in a normal day, right? And not everybody, and actually the vast majority of those people seeking out those app and downloading that app and getting engaged in those platforms aren't looking for the thing that's driving the conversation. You know, the single biggest obstacle we have for young people, and in some cases, even older people, is inertia. They are not mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. anything. And so if there's a cultural moment around, well, gosh, I should be investing. I should be doing something. There's something going on. Let me go explore. Let me go discover what's out there. You know, those are opportunities to actually get people in a good place. So I think what's important is the ecosystem has enough outlets and options for a potential client when these cultural moments happen. I think they're going to continue to happen at increasing frequency, particularly as the market starts to turn more favorable, hopefully in the next you know year or so, where people become excited again. And the mm-hmm. exuberance needs outlets. And what we're trying to do on our side is just to be a responsible outlet there and be a voice for and a place that seems to connect. And that's why we focus very much on people because because really when you think about our longer term product vision, you know, we believe portfolios of the future are portfolios of people, not portfolios of asset classes and tickers and people understanding sharp ratios and all that stuff that you deeply understand. And you do that for your clients every day. But the average consumer is never going to get there. And so what I believe is I'm going to have a portfolio in the future that I'm going to have probably a crypto person once the SEC decides what that is. I'm going to have mm-hmm. a real estate person. I'm going to have a bond person. I'm going to have a 
Kathy Woods kind of tech person that maybe looks more like me. And my diversification and risk is going to be managed through through people and relationships and a more human connection, even though it's through a digital experience and not through these abstract things that are stock tickers that people don't really understand. I'm going to come back to the last part of that in a second, but you've smoothly slid in there, you guys slogan because i have been to the website and doing research for oh, the conversation yeah. and saw well, it's not a slogan it's our vision it's actually portfolios of the future are portfolios yeah. of the people and so when you said that i was like this guy has said this forty thousand times and so it just rolls off his tongue but i want to dig into that little phrasing sure. a little bit more really quickly and just ask why do you believe that that is what's going to transform the investing landscape or the personal finance landscape, even if you want to go a step further. Why specifically do you believe that people will want to follow people instead of the way that my parents, my grandparents at least, would rather focus on the brain? Like I used to work for Merrill Lynch, for example, once upon a time, and I would hand people my business card, they'd see the blue bull and immediately they were impressed, right? That was the stamp on me. Or you meet people who have a Goldman Sachs financial advisor and that cachet means something about that particular person. And you're flipping that model now on its head. You're taking people who have none of that cachet, none of that relationship to the industry, maybe none of the baggage even. And those are the people you're putting out front and center. So why do you believe that this model is what's going to be transformative going forward? Yeah. So, and listen, I deeply appreciate the thundering herd and I'm glad you were a part of it. And it is the benchmark from a brand perspective around looking after the retail investor. Mm-hmm. But you know, that you know, mostly died in 2009, right? Right after 2008 when Bank of America took it over. And so that's unfortunate. But also that was emblematic of a time where digital wealth management and digital engagement and young folks, like those platforms just don't connect with me. And so what I believe and why the, this kind of slogan, and I'm not trying to be a salesperson here, even though I might sound like that, the slogan, portfolios of the future are built on portfolios of people. Like that kind of notion is really just an extension of maybe the oldest conversation people have, which is let's say you're at a Super Bowl party or let's say you're with your family at Thanksgiving. And, you know, you obviously everybody knows what you do. My guess is people ask you all the time what you're investing in, mm-hmm. what you're doing. And then usually you'll tell them. This happens to me. Usually you'll tell them. And then the next thing they'll say is, God, I wish you could just do that for me. Now, you actually are in that business. <laughs> so you're like, well, that would just be a client. I still don't want my family's clients. So but you way. probably don't want that, right? And why that is, is because they know you, they see you, they know who you are. And so it's that human connection that's really important. And to be honest, like the human financial advisor connection doesn't scale to 300 million Americans. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. It scales to a population that could afford to pay them and a population with assets that enable an institution to go put the resources of someone as talented as you against their portfolio. And that number is in hundreds of thousands, if not more than that, dollars to manage. So that's a very flattering way to call me an elitist, man. Uh, uh, <laughs> listen, you know, I'm a capitalist too. Everybody's got to get paid. <laughs> so the question is like, how do you skill? I say that facetiously, though. I yeah. criticize my own industry quite a bit on this show. So I definitely appreciate what you're saying. And I agree wholeheartedly. But the, why the portfolios of the future are portfolios of people is because people want to connect with people. You know, even if you think about the industry that I'm in, which or at least the venture-backed startup industry, mm-hmm. you know, what do venture investors invest in? I mean, they invest in ideas, but ultimately they're investing in founders and, and people. And like it's a core human principles. I invest in people. 
And so people can be a way in which to bridge the gap for someone who might not sure what to do and doesn't know what GOOG is to start to make the right action for their future. And so for us, it's again, what are the things that are connect people to taking the right action for them? And we think that's actually through people. Okay. I told you you were warming me up. I, I definitely can tell that there's a lot more counter to what the traditional influencer narrative is going into what you guys are building, which I really appreciate. But my last question to you on this is just where do we go from here? Like, mm-hmm. what does the next generation of social investing look like to you? Because I can tell that it's clearly a much bigger picture than just where you are today, where you're matching talent with the people seeking the information. What's next? I, I mean, I think it's really about like making and connecting communities that already exist today and connecting them through kind of some, uh, and I don't want to make this self-serving about our platform, but but someone's going to figure this out. And I think the next big social network is going to be around investing. Because if you think about money on the broadest level, there are so many taboo topics here, things that people will not, you know, people will not talk to you really honestly about your debt. People will not talk to you about how much money they make. Mm-hmm. It's not in our culture and other cultures. And when I was in China, like it's actually a very common thing to talk about. So when we would get like our bonuses every year, everyone would stand outside the office and ask to see my sheet. I was like, hell no, like, that's not happening. But in our culture, those things are taboo topics. What's not taboo is what are you investing in? And what's your performance? Your balance might be taboo. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that's something that's ever really going to get shared broadly. But what are you doing? What are your positions? And how do we, how do I kind of learn from that? And how can I start to, to benefit from the network effects of ideas and ideas around investing? And so, so I think the future is going to be in, in social investing and some level of virality around doing the right thing with our money. And we've already seen it happen with GameStop. We've already seen it happen in some of these crypto communities. Those instruments are not the right instruments. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how can you take the behavior and align it to the right instruments? Whoever figures that out, and I'm not saying we've got it figured out, we're going to try to, but whoever figures that out, that's going to be the next big thing. I would really appreciate it if you would figure out a way to scale that social platform, the social networking platform around finance and investing like that's a that's a world i would love to live in i myself would hate to have to go build it but i would love to live in that world so i'm excited and encouraged to hear you say that like that is where you see the next opportunity but my last question to you actually has probably nothing to do with investing or follow altogether so you can kind of relax your shoulders a little bit and sit back in your seat. But let's say for a moment, you never found your passion for this work for social investing, right? So you never built a platform designed to enable it. And you had to find a different way to occupy your days. But money wasn't a factor in your decision making at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now? I'd be cooking. Okay. Like as a professional chef or for yourself, for your family? Uh, I mean, I already do it for myself and my family. So I would love to be a professional chef. Yeah. Okay. If I was unconstrained and not motivated to do the thing that I'm doing right now, that that's, that's what I would do. And maybe someday when I'm done with this, maybe that's what I'll do. We'll see. I could imagine a world where after you exit from follow and are looking for the next thing, I turn on Food Network and you're on that season of the next Food Network star. We'll see. Maybe. I'm not sure I'm that telegenic, but I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate the thought. 
Awesome. Well, thanks, Manning. This was great, man. I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and also, frankly, educating me live in the moment in front of our audience. But where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or follow after this goes live? Sure. I mean, it's probably the best place is, is Twitter, which is just at Manning Field. It's not that complicated. That's my first and last name or LinkedIn. I'm there as well. But then our company's homepage is follow.co.com. That was a much more expensive URL, but follow.co. Or if you wanted to look at our app in the app stores, it's at follow invest. Awesome. Well, listeners, this has been yet another episode of the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcasting platform. That way, you'll be alerted immediately each week when a new episode is released. Maybe even consider sharing the link to this week's episode with your friends and colleagues. And if you really liked what you heard, be sure to leave us a review. This will help make sure that more people just like you are able to find the show organically. You may connect with me, your host, on social at Malcolm on Money. And feel free to send us any questions, comments, or kudos to podcast at tech-money.com. That email again is podcast at tech-money.com. And as always, we hope that this episode of the Tech Money Podcast has helped to make you just a little bit smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out tech-money.com. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is tech-money.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing, and the sound controls powered by Tech Money LLC. Thank you for listening. Information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...